Okay, so we were going uh, in the direction of how to apply the Eightfold Noble Path to this particular moment. And that is, is that we apply sati to wake up, to remember. And then we apply right noble view and right noble view is not a viewpoint or an idea uh, or a way of looking at the world as a concept, but rather it's actually looking or viewing something right now. That's how we use this word right noble view is right noble investigation. And in fact, by doing a right noble investigation, we be generally begin to come out of our uh, ordinary views and viewpoints and, and ways of looking at things and start looking at things in a brand new way as things pop up, as they occur, one by one as they occur. So this thought comes up, we remember to look, we investigate that thought, we determine is this thought worth having or not? And if it's not, then we throw it out and we then take on thoughts that are wholesome. Now, this is a very simple process and a lot of people don't recognize how easy it is. And so they say, well, it's hard. We're in fact, no, it's not. In fact, saying the word hard is just another unwholesome thought. Saying, aha, I caught you. That's a much more wholesome thought. So when you when the wake up calls, the normal thing that happens is, is that people see that the mind has a hindrance in it and they don't like that. They don't like that they can see that there's a problem in the mind. That not liking is just another mind moment of hindrance. And the way that you can take it. Uh, Kawanka had the phrase when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Now, that when the mind wanders away from the breath is actually the point of sati. When you wake up to see that the mind has wandered away from the breath, the right thing to do is just to come back to the breath or come back to the meditation. But most people don't do that. But in fact, sometimes even experienced meditators don't do that. What do they do instead? is that they fuss at themselves about having lost the attention of the breath. Oh no, the mind has wandered away. Oh, poor me. Oh, this is a mucky mind. Oh, I'll never get this meditation thing straightened out. This is hard work. Those are all hindrances. And we need to wake up to those kind of thoughts to recognize that, hey, that's not the truth. The truth is, is that I did wake up and to now that I woke up, I have a chance to make a change. So the full waking up is so, the ability to make a change. Go ahead. Sati and right view are or two aspects of the of that go hand in hand in the action of being wholesome. Yes, the Eightfold Noble Path is all about getting the mind immediately into a wholesome state. Because if the mind is in a wholesome state right this very moment, that means that you don't want anything. And if you don't want anything, you're unlikely to go kill somebody to get it. You're unlikely to go steal it. In other words, when your mind is in fact in a wholesome state, your uh, Siva is perfect. And yet they talk about it in the exact opposite order that you got to get your Siva straight before you can get Samadhi. And then with Samadhi, you get Panya. This is the beginner's path and there's reasons for that path to be there. The point though is, is that getting ourselves into seclusion and getting away from other people is Siva enough. Because if you were secluded from other people and you're nowhere around anybody else, the likelihood of you killing someone is quite remote. If you're nowhere around anybody else, then the likelihood of you stealing something from them is quite remote. I could still hurt myself, though. I'm sorry, what was that? I could still hurt myself, though. 
Yes, you could. Yeah. With unwholesome thoughts. And so getting ourselves secluded from, yeah. from those unwholesome thoughts requires almost that we get ourselves secluded from the world, to get away from it all. This is why the Buddha talks about going to a forest, to the foot of a tree, to an empty hut, to a pile of straw. All of these things have one thing in common. That is, is that before you got to that pile of straw, there was nobody there. Once you got to that hut, before you got to that hut, it was an empty hut. Okay, so this is the way that we look at it is, is that our sila in this practice is to get away from it all. Because by getting away from it all, we have fulfilled that issue of that we're not harming anyone. Mm -hmm. And so getting away from it all then means that by getting away from it all, we can take our mind off of it all and start putting the mind on wholesome things. So the first thing is we get away from the physical realities of and problems of life, and then we uh, recognize that by getting secluded from the world, we brought the world with us up here. And mm -hmm. so that's the second cleaning job. The first cleaning job of getting ourselves into seclusion is easy enough. The second item then is to get um, the, the problems, the fears, and all of that out of the mind that we brought with us. So once we get the, the hindrances out of the mind, all of the, and you can say that any hindrance then is uh, a thought of someplace else or some other time. Anything that's in the past, anything that's in the future, anything that's in another country, in another state, in another county, even across the street, is someplace else. That we're, what we're going to deal with is what's right here, right now. And then, in that small place, we're going to make it a happy place. A small, happy place. What does that mean? That means by throwing the hindrances out, we're going to uh, start looking at, uh, it's actually a small list. The first item on the list is safety and security. We don't feel safe and we don't feel secure, but when you get yourself into seclusion, you can recognize that now that I'm in seclusion, there is nothing dangerous here. I can, in fact, relax. I use the example, there's no alligators on the floor, there's no snakes, there's no spiders on the wall, there's no mafia coming, breaking in, uh, there's no gangs, there's no SWAT teams, there's no military operations, the IRS is not there. And this is actually what we're looking at here is uh, in the Buddhist concept of emptiness or sunyata. That in fact, in this particular moment, your life, is free from all fearful things. And because you are free from all kinds of fearful things, why is it that we don't feel safe and secure? Why is it that even though, I mean, both of you look around, there's nothing dangerous around. So why should there be any feelings of uh, danger? So by noticing that there's no dangers and talking to ourselves about no dangers and, and reassuring ourselves in the comforting way that there's nothing dangerous, we can begin to feel safe and secure. When we can feel safe and secure, then we can feel comfortable. And so we start talking ourselves about, isn't this night, everything is comfortable, the air is a comfortable temperature, the coffee is a comfortable temperature. Everything is comfortable. Everything is okay. And when we go that, then the next level is going to be satisfaction. And here's where the real issue comes in. And that is to feel satisfied. When we feel satisfied, then that means that we don't want anything. If we don't want anything, now the mind is really getting pretty clear to get ourselves in the state of satisfaction because satisfaction or sukha in the Pali is exactly the opposite of dukkha, which is 
being dissatisfied. And we go around our whole lives being dissatisfied and not know why. So now we're going to practice getting the mind in the state of satisfaction. Over and over again, we get ourselves, this is okay, finally, I'm, wow, finally, everything's all right. No problems right now. When we practice that over and over again, it brings on the fourth ingredient. The first three ingredients run a circle around each other, and that is one's right effort to change the mind into the wholesome. One's right effort to take a long, deep, easy breath. One's right effort to view things correctly, and one's right effort to remember to look. And so uh, looking and remembering to look and taking the right effort to change what we're seeing into the wholesome is the Eightfold Noble Path in operation, and they run and circle around each other, and when that happens enough, we add a fourth ingredient, and that fourth ingredient called Samasankapa is that we can use our right effort now to change our attitude from the attitude of a loser into the attitude of a winner. The attitude is, I can do this. The attitude is, I can change my mind. I can come out of my funk and come into a wholesome place. That's the Eightfold Noble Path in operation right there. Those four items, right sati, right view, right effort, and right attitude work together to bring about right unification of mind. So when the mind is whole and unified, our sila is automatically perfect. And that's the Eightfold Noble Path. It's a really easy way to look at it like this, and this comes out of Sutta number 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Most people, when they get introduced to Buddhism, they see the Eightfold Noble Path is merely a list of things to memorize. And that's about it. Yeah. It's just a list of things to memorize. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, uh, say again. Yeah, it's like a, a list of separate things and not like a unified process. It's really hard for me to hear what you're saying. Uh, speak slowly. Uh, I, I don't, the microphone is here. I don't know why. I was saying that, that I, I, the first time I started it, it was like a list of separate, that, like a checklist and not uh, a unified and complementary process. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're beginning to see that it's a unified practice together. And not only that, but Anapanasati is the method that we're going to apply the Eightfold Noble Path. And in fact, the Eightfold Noble Path is just almost like the theoretic base. And the actual application is the Anapanasati. But you notice that the word Sati is all over the place. The Satipatthana, Anapanasati, uh, Sama area uh, sati in the Eightfold Noble Path, and even in the uh, seven factors of enlightenment, sati comes first, unremitting sati, which means it's going to be there any time that we need it. Okay. Um, an example of what I'm talking about, one, uh, once someone asks the Buddha, are you constantly aware of this, that, and the other thing? And his answer was, Imagine that a man had his foot cut off. And he has no foot. He's got one foot, but not the other foot. Does he think about that cut off foot all the time? No, he only thinks about that foot when he needs it. Ah, that's the secret that we need sati and it should be there when we need it, not all the time, that we don't have to think about it all the time, but we do have to have it strong enough and powerful enough so that when we need it, it's going to be there. That's why we practice it on yeah, the end I was breath. thinking about practice. that. Go ahead. 
I was thinking about that uh, in relation to, for example, uh, music or movies. Like, if you remember that, uh, let's say, a song is not a, a song in itself, it's a com composite of chords and words and such and such, you, it's, like, harder to get into the song and, like, in the process of, like, entering the, the dream of the song. And sometimes you you wanna like enter that. Okay, one of the things is uh, an important point about music is the repetitive nature of it. That it has to be done over and over and over and over again. I mean, there has been uh, playful songs, uh, something like Johnny One Note. Have you ever heard that song, Johnny One Note? Johnny One Note, uh, the star of the thing, is just one note, but there's a whole song behind it. So my question is, do you know of any songs that are just one note? No. But are there songs that that one note is repeated in various ways? The answer is yes. That that's the whole idea uh, of music is, is that it's repetitive. And that that's what gets the mind interested and curious about it rather than just noise. It's the repetitive nature of it that gets us our attention. And that's basically because the kind of neural circuitry that we have picks up on that kind of repetition. You could say that the, the highest thing that the human can do that other animals can't do is that the animal or the human can connect the dots. You know, when you were a little kid, you had uh, uh, drawings or pictures. That all that was was a series of dots with numbers. And that you learned to connect the dots. And when you did, you could see a picture of a chicken or something. Mm -hmm. Right. OK, so that's what the human brain can do is connect the dots. We have to give it the dots to connect. And this is why we call it repetition. And that music is nothing but repetition and I've got a lot of different music that I can talk about, but the two that I'll use would be um, The Girl from Empanema and Beethoven's uh, opening movement to the Fifth Symphony. And it's always just the same thing over and over again. All right. Listen also to the girl from Empanema. You hear that repetition over and over and over and over again. All right. That's basically what we're going to be practicing with Anapanasati is that repetitive coming back and giving ourselves wholesome thoughts, coming back and giving ourselves wholesome thoughts to come out of the unwholesome back into the wholesome over and over and over and over again. And pretty soon we begin to develop it as a habit. That over and over and over and over again also develops not the habit of just having wholesome thoughts, but it also develops the attitude that I can do this because I've been doing it over and over and over again. I can continue to do it over and over again. And so it builds up that confidence, that shraddha, that attitude that we can do it. And so this is then the practice of Anapanasati. Now, Anapanasati has basically 16 steps, but every one of them has the quality of a skill to be developed. So even in Anapanasati, it's not just memorizing a list. But when we come to this one item on the list and it says, thus one trains oneself. An example of that is as he mindfully breathes in and mindfully breathes out, he trains his mind for gladness. He gladdens the mind with that in-breath and he gladdens the mind with that out-breath. And that's the training. We actually train our mind to be glad. 
that come out of unwholesome thoughts, negative thoughts, problem thoughts, or even critical thoughts. Now, what do I mean by a critical thought? It means it is comparing. This is good, but that's better. This is old, this is new. This is big, this is small, okay? All of those kind of comparisons is basically what gets our greed going because we like the big and we don't like the small. We like the new and we don't like the old. And so going around and making all of these distinctions and judgments about things is basically going to keep us in a critical mind state. And we need to change that mind state from a critical mind state into a nurturing mind state and the nurturing mind state is everything is okay. Everything's fine right now. We don't have to compare this okayness and that okayness to see which is more okay than the other. That everything's just all right. Everything is satisfying. Everything is satisfactory. It's the comparisons that cause the problem. And so when we stop comparing things in the mind and just let things be the way that they are, that comes out of that critical thinking into nurturing thinking so apply the nurturing kind of thoughts to your to your mind like this breath is a good breath oh this is so good and as i breathe out i relax and i feel good okay so this is the language that we use and this is the skill that we're developing is the skill of gladdening the mind because that skill of gladdening the mind will then bring on the skill of the feeling the way that we're talking to ourselves. So if we tell ourselves that we are safe and secure and we repeat that over and over again, just like Beethoven does, then we begin to feel safe and secure. And when we repeat over and over again to ourselves that we're comfortable, then like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, repeating it over and over again, we begin to feel comfortable. And when we repeat over and over again that we are in fact satisfied, we begin to feel satisfied. And when we feel satisfied over and over again, we get the idea then that we can fact, in fact feel satisfied over and over again. That's the attitude that comes in, that attitude of I can do this. And so this is the way that we practice Anapanasati and it brings in a bodily component because we're breathing, we begin to relax the body. When we uh, are talking to ourselves and hold some thoughts, we begin to relax our feelings and we start to feel good. When we're breathing well and having wholesome thoughts, that means that now the mind is really sharp and focused and fit for work. And so when the mind is sharp and focused and fit for work, now we can apply it to the job that really needs to be done. But we got to get the mind fit for work first. This is the two steps process that's often minced in uh, some forms of meditation. Uh, the example would be choiceless awareness. But if the mind is full of hindrances, then I'm choicely aware that my mind is full of garbage. Not so good. A better way to do it is let's clean the garbage out and now we can be choicelessly aware of what's really going on not with the pile of garbage that I'm adding to it. The other example would be the noting method of the Mahasi. The, the noting method is to note whatever's there. Well, if whatever's there is a bunch of hindrances, a bunch of garbage, then that's how we're spending our time. That in fact, we uh, many meditators will go so far as to spend their entire meditation practice in their own private city dump. In their own pile of garbage, sorting through their own pile of garbage. Because they never got the idea or the point, yeah, hey man, you do not have to live in your garbage patch. You do not have to live in your own garbage dump. You can come out of that because there's other places to be. And so this is the basic practice. This is the Anapanasati, which uh, has to do with the skill development of gladdening the mind, the skill development of sukha, of bringing our feelings up to where we feel safe and secure, comfortable, 
satisfied and that satisfaction brings on success and these are items on the uh, uh the list of uh anapanasati once that real success comes in that means that we can really see how the mind works we can see how the feelings condition the mind and the mind conditions the feelings you can begin to make these connections that i'm just naturally assuming but I also know that you really haven't seen them yet, but you will. You'll begin to look at this stuff and see what's going on, and you'll figure out how your own mind operates. Once you recognize how the mind operates, you can see what's going on for sure. Then you can seize and take control over it. And in fact, that's what we've been doing all along. This is a, this is a game that requires skin. How much skin? your whole body skin. That's how I mean, this is uh, this is an effort. This is right effort. We have to put the effort in and the effort is to clean this mind out and to put wholesome thoughts in. As we develop that as a skill, it gets easier and easier. Go ahead. You combine that with the whole body awareness, right? one point at a time, one by one as they occur. One by one as they occur, whatever is presenting itself to you, that's something that should be seen, investigated. All right, now you can direct that a bit. One of the ways that they talk about it is, is that as you're breathing in, you move your minds from uh, the beginning of the in-breath of the sensations in the face and the chest down to the throat. And at the end of the breath, you're in this area down here. That's one way of doing it. The Gawanka method is to take a body scan and over a period of 10 or 15 minutes, lots of breaths, you move from the top of your head down through all of the face, down through the body, down to the feet. There's various different formalities for doing this but basically we uh the the way that the anapanasati sutta is set up it looks especially in combination with the satipatthana is that we go after the important stuff first not just all of it first an example of what's important first is number one get the body breathing well number two experience the body's breathing once we do that and we get fairly good in it, now we start paying attention to the hands. What are your hands doing? What is your face doing? If you can keep track of your breathing and what your hands and what your face is doing, that's quite a full plate. And still you're going to move from one to the other back and forth, that you can only do one, one thing at a time, one by one as they occur. A lot of people have the idea that, oh, well, I'm watching the breath, but I have all of these background thoughts. No, the thoughts are not in the background. They're in the foreground. They're just mixed in with other foreground items. Like I'm aware of the breath, have a thought, aware of the breath, have another thought, have aware of the breath, have a third thought. And those thoughts are not in the background. They're just there. And we're beginning to pick up on them in ways that we didn't see before. So don't think that things are happening actually simultaneously, but rather that the mind runs very fast. It runs about 10 cycles a second, which means 10 different thoughts a second. Now, 10 cycles a second is an extremely slow computer. And in fact, the PCs mm -hmm. of the 1980s ran at 4.77 megahertz, and the uh, modern PCs are running at two, three, and sometimes four gigahertz. And here the whole poor human mind is set at a cycle time of 10 cycles a second down at the alpha wave level. But in that cycle time, individual things happen. And so if we begin to get very quick or start watching and noticing what the mind is doing, we can begin to see these things happening at that level of speed. And so we recognize then that Things don't happen at the same time. They happen one at a time. Which makes the thing, actually things much easier. 
You don't have to juggle two or three or four balls at the same time. You only have to juggle one ball at a time. Then, in fact, that's what an actual juggler does. He's only got to pay attention to one, uh, uh, what they call it, bowling pin or one ball that he's throwing in the air at a time because all the other balls are in the air. They haven't landed yet. When they do, he'll throw that one back up. And so, in a way, we're learning how to juggle because we're still only doing one thing at a time. And so this is how we begin to watch and see the mind as it works. Okay, so let's pause this for a moment and go back to um, Parker. You had kind of a question that you didn't get asked yet, and I'd like to hear what it is and see if we can weld this into or fold this into what we're doing now. Uh, sure. Um, it's less of a pressing question than before now. Um, I think it was a bit of me working myself up. Uh, but uh, the question, I guess, related to uh, old business and how to, like, skillfully... Um, I guess the um, we could talk about like um, the how the Buddha sometimes met. And I was curious in how that um, on the reasoning behind that. I understand from calls before what you said about it. I just um, maybe a rehashing of that. Okay, you were broken, breaking up there a bit, and yeah. I'm still a bit confused. Can you tell me again in few oh, words? Oh, sure. Possibly? It was kind of all over the place. Um, what, is, what is the reasoning behind um, the Buddha's uh, saying of, like, um, the duty to one's parents? Or, like, why does he say that one has a duty to one's parents? Um, well, we can go off in that direction for a moment and, and see if we can tie this back into the actual practice. We do have uh, duties and responsibilities to all kinds of things that, in fact, we could go so far as to say that the, the full teachings of the Buddha that could be packaged into Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, has to do uh, with this particular point in the sense that if we do our duty to the Dhamma, then we will uh, or we will suffer less. The duty then, in fact, that's a, uh, an important point that comes later in the practice. And it actually becomes the practice itself. When you recognize it in this way, that means that all of our lives, everyone has a duty to the Dhamma and that Dukkha is only when we're not fulfilling our duty to the Dhamma. And that when we are fulfilling our duty to the Dhamma, we're getting the benefit of doing that. An example of that is that the body wants to breathe. If you don't allow the body to breathe, you're not doing your duty to the Dhamma, and the outcome of that is you're going to die and probably suffer along the way. So when we understand it correctly from the very beginning that really the whole teachings of the Buddha about Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, the way to come out of the Dukkha into Dukkha, Naroda is to recognize our duty our responsibility to the to the bigger part. So when we get there, uh, from that perspective, now duties to mom and dad become clear and obvious in the way that mom and dad, uh, you you wouldn't be here without them. That you would you actually uh, owe your existence, your very existence 
to mom and dad. If mom and dad had not done what they were doing, and they weren't even worried about you at the time, they were just doing their thing. But if they hadn't been doing their thing, you wouldn't be here. And so the, your whole reality is based upon your relationship to your mom and your dad. Not only that, but uh, mom and dads in normal, the people who conceive and birth the baby also raise the child. But that doesn't have to be done that way. And in fact, in, on occasions, it's not. And then the question is, well, who is my mommy? The one who raised me or the one who birthed me? And the answer is you've got duties to both of them. You've got duties to both of these people. And if it's the same person, then that means that you've got kind of a double duty, both for birthing you and giving you a chance to be alive. And then number two, more importantly, keeping you alive for years. Moms put out a lot of effort. They nurture those babies. I mean, uh, the first four or five years of life at any particular moment, any particular young baby, could be dead. It happened a lot. And in fact, that's part of what civilization is all about, is learning how to keep our infants alive. Infant mortality is a major, major issue uh, uh, for, for population and the entire society. So when you recognize that your moms did the duty of keeping you alive, that you were not just another infant mortality thing. And so the Buddha says that we do have that duty of paying respect to our parents. That if the, if the parents have given you something, then you have a duty, you have to honor them because they deserve that. And yet what we find instead in our culture, especially with the way that the culture is set up, is, is that the young people wind up totally rebelling against their parents that I would imagine that almost every young man goes through at least one temper tantrum around the age of 16 where he's really willing to let daddy hold it finally. And the dam gets busted and all of the frustration for our whole life gets poured right on to daddy. And he don't take it too well. All right. That, in fact, that whole point then can destroy families. It can destroy relationships. And the Buddha says, no, we have to, in fact, have some respect and some regard for our families. So even if, and this is actually an ordinary thing in the sense that every religion, every culture, every place teaches this. That in the Bible, I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Children must honor thy father and thy mother so that thy uh, days will be long upon the land. Right? What that means is, is that if you don't honor your mother and daddy, you're going to get kicked out of the nest. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that happens. And there's no reason for that. So... Um, on, in one of the suttas, the Buddha says, even if you carried your mom and your dad around on your shoulders, still you would not repay them for the service of you being alive. Now, there's something else that's in there that's quite remarkable and that it's, uh, it's worth noting, but it is something that's observable. Generation after generation after generation, the, the children never are capable of paying their parents back. What they have to do, and a part of our society, and in fact, our species and being alive, and in fact, even mammals do this, and that is, is that they pay it forward. We don't pay back. We have to pay it forward to the next generation. In other words, um, the dog, who is a, a brand new puppy and takes nourishment from his mom's uh, 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 milk. He can never then give his milk back to his mom or she, but she can pass that milk on to her babies. And so the duty then to the Dhamma is, is that mom, by raising you, is actually doing her duty 
to the Dhamma for payback for the fact that her mother raised her. And if we're going to keep this, the whole um, species alive and going, we cannot break that chain. We have to keep that chain going. We have to have one generation after the next paying attention to and doing their duty to the next generation. But that does not absolve us of our duties to pay it back. And so we do it in both ways. Most of the payment is going to be done paying forward, but some of it is going to be done paying mom back in the sense of paying respect to her, honoring her, giving her uh, benefit of the doubt and all of that kind of stuff. And when she gets old, she may in fact need help the way that you needed help from her when you were an infant. And so taking care of our parents is part of the duty that we have even into their old age. But even at the age that you are now where your mom is probably fit and fiddle, fit as a fiddle could probably bust your chops if the right circumstances, still you owe it to her to take care of her. That this is a major part to recognize that we do have a duty to our families. And that we uh, have that paid in both directions. And then when we come to it from the sense of an overall idea about the Dhamma itself, when you're a Dhamma dude, you recognize that sometimes your parents are intellectual parents. I really do. <laughs> I really do see Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po is my mommy and daddy. I cannot think of it any other way. Especially Achan Po, he was my mommy. He took care of me. He really did. I would not have been able to make it without him. And so I honor him that way even now. That anything that he would need, I would be willing to give it. But I better stand out of the way because there's 10,000 other people who were willing to give it even more willing than I am. And I better stand out of their way <laughs> because they're going to get to him first to give him whatever he needs. And in fact, uh, I have heard it from more than one Parang, more than one Westerner has come back and says, you know, I went over to uh, um, uh, Deepa Bawan on the Koh Samui and uh, Achen Po's family is Koh Samui. I mean, he was from Koh Samui. He became a monk and went and stayed at, at uh, uh, Watson Mok on the mainland, but now he lives his life on Koh Samui back with his family. And these Farangs come to me and they say that on Koh Samui, Achan Po is a god. He is, he is the most revered monk on that island, and he is even overly revered because of his status. Why is that? Because he has been a good mommy to so many people. And so the same thing then is with the Dhamma that I cannot pay Achan Po back. But what Achan Po has indicated to me is, is that no, he wants me to pay it forward. That it's because of my relationship with Achan Po that I'm here on the internet talking to you guys about it. That this is Achan Po talking. This is his stuff coming through me. I'm only a conduit and I'm doing my duty to the Dhamma. Okay. And so we have both duty to the Dhamma and duty to the families. We actually have a duty to take care of our kids. Or whoever is. Um, in, in that situation. And guess what? If we do the duty to the Dharma and we do it well, we get the benefit of that, which is no suffering. That I feel extremely joyful when I can share the Dharma with you guys. And when I reflect upon Achan Po, that this is doing the duty to the Dharma and that you know that too, that when you're actually taking care of your mom, and she enjoys being taken care of. That gives you also great joy. 
to do the duty to the Dhamma gives us great joy. To do duties to our mom gives us great joy. That's why we have things like Mother's Day and gifts giving and all of that kind of stuff is because we do want to honor her because we owe her our whole life. So actually we could go so far as to not honor just my mommy, but I can honor motherhood. Because without motherhood, we wouldn't have a society. Motherhood and nurturing of children and infants is the basis for our whole society. And each one of us is a um, recipient of that, that you wouldn't be here if you had not been nurtured. But what happens with little kids is about the age of four to six in that time frame, we come out of nurturing into now, kid, you got to perform. That in fact, uh, one of the things that I remember very strongly was I was in a particular restaurant in India. It was actually an outdoor restaurant. I mean, there was no walls. There was a roof and a dirt floor and some tables and whatnot like that. But there was one adult in there and three kids. One and all of the kids were about the age of six. So you had one adult and three six-year-olds running that whole restaurant. They did the table waiting and the dishwashing and everything. And so six-year-olds in, in one kind of culture are fit for work. They're ready to go to work. That's why we have first grade at the age of six. It's because the kids are ready to be put for work. But instead of put, put to work uh, waiting tables in the United States, they're put to work learning the ABCs, one, two, threes, et cetera, like that. But we put the kids to work. There's another time when kids are put to work. And that is, is that uh, little Johnny, three or four years old, has all the nurturing of mommy, including um, being able to touch her belly as the new baby grows. But as soon as that new baby grows, little Johnny is now mama's little helper. He's not the infant anymore. He doesn't get the nourishment. Now he's got to help mommy nurture the next kid by. So even four-year-olds are put to work, or six-year-olds, too soon. We put the kids to work, and each one of us kids resent the fact that we have lost that nurturing and now have been put to work. And we resent it. And we have lost that nurturing. Well, guess what? Now that you're an adult and you remembered that you were nurtured so well when you were an infant, why don't you start nurturing yourself like that now? Become your own mommy and start nurturing yourself and regain that relationship with yourself on the inside so that you become a, a close-knit family on the inside that the mommy on the inside and the child on the inside are nurturing and taking care of each other rather than one being critical of the other so what happens with the parent ego state is is that first we learn nurturing, and then we learn critical, and then we learn more critical, and then we learn some more critical day after day, year after year, and we grow up with a critical mind when, in fact, we started out with a much better mind, a nurturing mind. And so the whole practice of Anapanasati is to come out of that critical mind, those unwholesome thoughts, into nurturing thoughts. Well, if the Buddha is talking about honoring thy mother and thy father, we're actually talking about it in the sense of nurturing. That honoring of our mother and our father means that we're beginning to honor and nurture our memories of them rather than remembering their criticism and our criticisms of them. That we begin to nurture ourselves become our own parent and nurture our moms and uh, dads because they nurtured us when we were really little. Now it's time to give that nurturing back. But guess what? That nurturing is often a skill that we've lost. We've lost that skill. For a 60-year-old man, it may have been 55 years since he's practiced any nurturing at all. 
And so it's a new skill for him to develop, the development of the skill of beginning to nurture himself. Everything is okay. That you don't have to go do this, that, and the other thing in order to feel good. It's okay to feel good right now. And so this is a way of looking at it, that uh, we're using actually mommy and daddy, real mommy and daddy, is a good example for the entire Dhamma. The entire show to learn to be grateful for the nurturing that we've got. And the way that we're going to practice that gratitude is with the generosity of new nurturing. And so you could say then that our duty to the Dhamma is to begin to nurture ourselves and to nurture our parents and to nurture our friends and to nurture the people that are around us. And we're not going to be able to do that if we can't nurture our own mind. So that's where it starts. We've got to get back into the habit of nurturing ourselves. And then you can think of nurturing things to do for mom when she's in the room. When she comes in, there she is. Oh, mom, I'm so glad to see you. And I was just thinking, I'm so grateful for you having borne me. Thank you so much. And then you could have a really warm, tender moment with your mom. She loves it. She really does uh, like the fact that you do appreciate and show her the gratitude for all of the stuff that she's done for you. And not only that, but that gushy warm feeling that she gets will give you a gushy warm feeling too. And there's your benefit. There's your Duca Naroda. Doing your duty to mom will give you great feelings. Beautiful, wholesome, wildly, <laughs> excellent feelings by giving your duty to your mom. And if your mom is dead, still, whenever you have thoughts of her, have wholesome thoughts of her. And let her be dead. She's gone now, but the memories I have of her are fond memories. And I don't have to remember the hard stuff. I don't have to bring that stuff up and feel bad. I can remember all the good things that happened. So these are the ways of uh, honoring our parents. And um, there's a, though the Buddha doesn't talk about it, that Bible verse, those Ten Commandments, it has kind of a promise, but that promise is really uh, a threat of reality, that if we do not honor our father and our mother, we are actually losing our base of operations. That if we don't honor our father and mother, then we are not honoring our nest. And if we're not honoring our nest, we will lose our nest. This is why it's put in there exactly that way, that uh, honor thy father and thy mother so that thy days may be long upon the land. Because if you don't honor your father and your mother, he's going to, daddy's going to kick you right out. It happens in every generation, about the age of 18, that daddy gets to the point of, I've had enough of that kid. I want him in college or on the football team or in the army or something. Just get him out of here. <laughs> and the reason for that is because the young man is feeling his oats. He's competing with his dad. He's trying to show dad that he's just as good as he is. And then we stop honoring our father and start competing with them. And then we compete with our dads for the rest of our lives. Even after dad's dead, some guys still compete with their dad. Don Trump, Donald Trump is a really clear example of someone, even though daddy's been dead for years, he's still competing with daddy. He's not honoring his father at all. He's trying to rip him off instead. So this is a way of looking at it is, is when we begin to honor our father and our mother, that means that we give them credit where it's due and give forgiveness for the times when they've screwed up. 
because their screw-ups were probably not theirs anyway. It was grandpa and grandma's, but then we can't blame grandpa and grandma because they got their screw-ups from their dads and moms. And so how many grades do you have to put on it before we recognize that this is a generational thing? And it's a mixed bag. And the reason that it's a mixed bag is because we have both that nurturing and the critical part. And the critical almost always takes over the nurturing part until we practice correctly the Anapanasati and we start practicing Buddhism correctly and that is to rearrange that position from being overly critical going back to being nurturing. So in a way then you begin to treat um, as a young man every old man is your daddy. And you begin as an old man to treat every young man as your son. That's actually quite common where, uh, let us say, um, the boss or CEOs or someone in their old age, they are actively looking for a, uh, a student that they can mentor. They want to find a prodigy. They want to find someone that can be their son. And often it's not their actual son because they've already screwed up the relationship with their son. And so they look for someone else. I remember that very clearly with um, a man in South Carolina who got me actually into the Navy because he was a lieutenant commander. And the the. Uh, the relationship that I had with him, I also recognized deteriorated the relationship that he had with his son, that he was using me as a substitute because he wanted to nurture me and I allowed that nurturing to happen and he couldn't do that with his own son because he'd already messed up his relationship with his son. But that desire to take care and to nurture, even though in this case it's not uh, a mommy or a young daddy taking care of an infant. Now we're in a situation of an old man still nurturing a young man in business or in uh, something like that. So that feeling of nurturing continues on. We want to actually develop that as a skill. Rather than as a substitute that he could have nurtured me and his son. And so this is a way of, of looking at it is, is that we begin to uh, look at it that way, that if we really do honor our own mother and father, then as we grow up, we begin to honor everyone else as one of our own children. We become family here. That we're all interconnected. And so that one little thing about honoring thy mother and thy father winds up being massive. It's, it's a major part of the teaching of the Buddha. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Right. I especially like the part about giving mom a hug and telling her how much we appreciate her. Yes. Oh, it's in Mm -hmm. All right, guys, do you have any more questions then? I think that we've pretty well covered it. We can uh, <laughs> bring her over here. Oh, I have a lucky, yeah, here's, here's lucky. Okay, well, come on, lucky. <laughs> No, you don't bother him. The man uh, delivering our drinking water. Uh. And she's very curious because she's the she's the guard dog here. Uh. Hey, I'm here. Hey, I'm here. You don't have to worry about the delivery man. You're okay. Hmm? You remember me? No, she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's gone now. Here's mine. Okay. 
All right, so this is Lucky Dog. She's doing her business. Uh -huh. He's being the guard dog here, and so we don't need her doing that right now. Uh, do you guys have any questions? We could go over it again, basically, and Eric will will continue our deeper discussion of Anapanasati at a at another time. We haven't finished it, but I think that you've got enough going now that you can get uh, get yourself into wholesome thoughts. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to talk more about the seclusion part next time. Well, basically, the easiest way that you can seclude yourself is by just closing your eyes. <laughs> That's the easiest way to do it. Okay, it takes very little work. You just close your eyes, or another way of of saying it is to just look away. That if you're seeing something really ugly and you don't want to look at it, then you just divert your eyes. <laughs> and so that's the kind of solution right there. So um, actual solution. Another example of is right now, both Eric and Keyshawn are um, off into the. Um, they're they're out camping basically. That that uh, they literally went to the forest. They took a tent. Well, uh, <laughs> Keishan called. We didn't didn't uh, um, videotape it, and we should have, because what he realized was is that when he went to the forest to get into seclusion. He didn't bring all or he didn't go just to the forest. He brought a stuff bunch of stuff with him. And one of the things that he brought with him was fear. And here he is in the forest with nothing to fear. And yet everything that goes bump in the night, he's afraid. Instead of investigating, so that's what we talked about was no, you've got to go investigate and one of the ways that you, you don't have to get out of the tent at night, you can just listen. But most people when they hear something go bump in the night in the forest, instead of listening, which is what the ancients would do, they start telling themselves all the possible things that could go wrong. And we build up fear for no. We're. In the forest, things go bump in the night all the time. These are, are trees fall, limbs fall, um, all kinds of things happen. And if you listen carefully, there's kind of a musical clatter that's going on. But if you're uh, a Chicago boy and you go out to the woods and something goes bump in the night, it's going to terrify him. Because he's got all kinds of possibilities that he's invented in his mind instead of being in the real here now of just listening. OK, but that's an example of seclusion is to get get out of the environment that you're in. And go someplace new. Where you're alone. You can actually close the room to your bedroom and now you're in an empty room. That's enough. Now, what we see instead is the idea of a meditation retreat. The Buddha didn't have any meditation retreats. He, there is no place where it says go to the forest or the foot of a tree or a big meditation hall. We've got 100 people in it. No, he's talking about seclusion. And yet in the meditation retreats, you'll have 100 people coming and sitting together in a meditation hall pretending to be alone. Everyone's pretending to be in seclusion, and in fact, everybody's just pretending because there's 100 people around. Right next door, here, there, 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 behind me, standing in line eating, there's a person in front, a person behind, there's people all over the place, and everyone's pretending in noble silence that nobody's there. That's what happens in the meditation retreats. A real seclusion is quite different than that. It's when you actually are secluded. 
And like I said, the easiest way to do that is just merely closing your eyes. And now, as long as you, if you're sitting in that uh, meditation hall with all those other people and you're looking around, you're not secluded at all. But all they had to do is just close their eyes and now they're in seclusion. So we can do it in, in many, many different ways. We can have seclusion by going to a retreat. You can have seclusion by going to an empty hut. You can have seclusion by closing your eyes. You can have seclusion by going to a forest. But seclusion is seclusion. Sitting in front of your laptop, not seclusion. Sitting in front of the TV, not seclusion. Reading a book, not seclusion. Turning off the TV and the laptop and the telephone and everything else and just sitting with yourself. Now that's seclusion. Does that answer that question about seclusion? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, let's finish up now. This has been a good talk. I've really enjoyed it. We've basically covered two different areas, but they're completely overlapping. Okay, go be a good mommy to yourself. That's how you can actually honor your mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And go be a and, good mommy to her back. <laughs> yes. Pardon? Oh, yeah, first I have to be a good mommy to myself, and then I can be a good mommy to my mom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excellent, guys. We'll see you. Thank you very much. Good meeting you, Eric. Yes. Okay, Good Eric. You. See you soon. Bye. bye bye. Yeah, nice meeting you too. See you, Parker. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you so much, Parker, for all the work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I had a cards are cool too. <laughs> But, and now that you know each other, I encourage Sangha, I encourage you guys to, to get together and to talk Tama and to meet each other and and um, uh, uh, grow your friendships. Certainly. All righty. Well, bye bye. <laughs>